You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello and welcome to Security Unlocked, a new podcast from Microsoft where we unlock insights from the latest in news and research from across Microsoft's security engineering and operations teams. I'm Nick Villingham. And I'm Natalia Gadilla. In each episode, we'll discuss the latest stories from Microsoft security, deep dive into the newest threat intel, research, and data science. And profile some of the fascinating people working on artificial intelligence in Microsoft security. If you enjoy the podcast, have a request for a topic you'd like covered, or have some feedback on how we can make the podcast better, please contact us at securityunlocked at microsoft.com or via Microsoft Security on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Hi, Nick. Welcome to episode 13. Thank you, Natalia. Uh, Welcome to you as well. I'd just like to say for the record, I like the number 13. I'm embracing 13. Do we know why 13 is an unlucky number? Is Is it just superstition? There are a lot of theories. 13 people at the Last Supper, that's part of the reason. 13 really? steps to the gallows. I, I think this is baloney. I don't think this is real. I think, I think 13 is <laughs> a great number. I think we should celebrate it. You know it. what? That's, that's a good approach. Let's do and it. We should celebrate it with, with a joke. <laughs> so before we started rolling, we were lamenting the fact that there are very few, if any, like true sort of security, cybersecurity flavored jokes. So we sort of created some or we we've evolved some do you want to go first natalia because you've got a joke that i've not heard so this would be in theory a genuine reaction do you want to give me your joke yeah ready yep what's a secret agent's go-to fashion i don't know what's a secret agent's go-to fashion spyware (laughs) spyware yeah it's, uh, it's all right wow didn't it's even okay. try for a chuckle. I did. No, I genuinely did. I, I was like, got a smile, guys. Oh, I was hoping to like that one. It just <laughs> spyware. Yeah, no, it's okay. So you've heard this already, but I, the audience haven't. And I know that they're all going to be absolutely cracking up when they hear this. So what do you do when your pyramid gets infected with ransomware? You unencrypt it. That's pretty good, right? That's pretty good. I've got a new one. We're going to try okay. a new one. I'm going to try and laugh. Like, I'm going to be in the right frame of mind for if it is funny, I'm going to try and laugh. You ready? <laughs> I like that little if it is funny. All right. Well, Why doesn't Superman fight cybercrime? Why? Because he's scared of cryptocurrency. No, 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 no. Okay. So it's a joke <gasps> about, it's a, no, no, we're going to pull this one apart and we're going to fix right, it. Right, right. So it's a wordplay on cryptocurrency. So it's got to be something like Superman's laptop. No, that's not it. But we're going to work on this. Strong start. If you're a, a dear listener of the podcast, if you think you can make this Superman joke work for us, let us know. Security Unlocked at Microsoft.com or hit us up on the Twitters, MSFT Security. So do we want to tell everyone about this week's episode? <laughs> I, I guess we probably should. On today's episode, we speak to Peter Anuman, who is going to talk to us about business email compromise. This is the fourth of five conversations we're having on the podcast to cover content from the MDDR. Peter explains to us the difference between sort of general phishing in the consumer email space and phishing and email compromise in sort of business corporate world. 
and also what the attackers are doing once they do compromise a business email account. Make sure to follow along at home by downloading the Digital Defense Report, aka.ms, WAC Digital Defense. And then after that, we speak with... Scott Christensen, a senior program manager at Microsoft, who, as he says it, is the security conscience for our company. So he does a lot of work on the software development life cycle and ensuring that we are delivering secure code, that we're adhering to our policies and standards around what it means to have secure code. And in addition to all of that, he's a professor. So he talks to us about the cybersecurity program that he's part of and... It's a great conversation. It is. On with the pod. On with the pod. Peter Anuman, welcome to the Security Unlocked podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Well, we like to start the podcast off with getting our uh, interviewees to give us a, a quick introduction to who they are. Obviously, we'd love to know your title, but more uh, interestingly is tell us about what you do day to day. What's your job look like? So my name is Pierre or Peter Anneman, and I work in the Digital Crimes Unit in the Microsoft Steeler organization, which is the legal group. And within this group, I'm part of the Global Strategic Enforcement Team, and we currently are focusing on BEC or Business Email Compromise. As regards my title, Cybercrime Investigator, so I focus on developing cases that we then either pursue with the civil a lawsuit or in order to, to identify the threat actors, or we develop cases that are then subject of a criminal referral to law enforcement where we believe the threat actors are located. So that's what I do on my day-to-day basis, as well as looking at trends, looking at intelligence, dark web data to try and see how the criminals, online criminals are using different tools in order for us to try and be ready and up to date. That's an amazing title. I'd love to have that on a business card. (laughs) So is your background law enforcement? Are you a lawyer? This might be a very uh, broad question, but how did you get to where you are? So I started off pursuing, um, once I finished my high school, I always wanted to be a lawyer. And so I pursued legal studies and went to law school in the UK. And when I finished law school, I I had a a passion for pursuing like legal, um, more enforcement related activities. And the law and police was one, but I heard Army had a very stringent course in France. And so I pursued a four-month uh, accelerated course to become an officer in the French Army. And uh, so, and thereafter, I was a lieutenant. I had to leave, but always had a, um, a passion for enforcement. And from there, I ended up working in a law firm trying to combat online piracy as well as different types of cybercrime. So it, it, it included piracy, but there was also child sexual abuse material where you know, we uh, support the law enforcement where we can. And that just developed. And I developed skills. I did a master's in information security to learn some of the tools, how the internet works, and just learned what I needed to and was curious. I spoke with a lot of experts that they taught me so many things on the way. And now I ended up working in this amazing organization. On today's episode, in this discussion, we're talking once again about the the Microsoft Digital Defense Report, the MDDR, which came out uh, in September of, of this year of 2020. And Peter, you're here to talk to us about 
a section or, or part of the state of cybercrime, which is called phishing and business email compromise. You you contributed heavily to this report. Could you just sort of tee us up if 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 you've not heard about the MDDR, the Microsoft Digital Defense Report, and you're sort of you know interested in downloading it and learning more? Tell us about this section of phishing and business email compromise. What what's the scope of this section, and what are, what are you going to learn in it? Phishing has been um, you know with a PH for those who don't know involves where typically involves where people threat actors send emails to people and once in the inbox entice you to click a link you know to upgrade update your password or something of that nature increasingly it's being related to themes like lures like COVID-19 or election related and when you click the link you go to a site where they ask you for your credentials and once they have your credentials then they in most cases, may have access to your account unless you've got two-factor authentication or some other security measures. And so in this section, what we try to deep dive is try to explain the different types of cases that may fall in that in that category of online crime. And what I mean by that is you will see from the sections, there's one on credential phishing. There's a second which is more based on BEC, business email compromise, sometimes called CEO fraud, and we can speak about it a bit later. And then there's a third category, which is really a combination of the first two, where the threat actors use credential phishing and then lead to some kind of fraud, financial fraud. So what patterns are you seeing when it comes to credential phishing? How does this manifest in an attack? What would an example of credential phishing look like? So when you look at each of these sections, the three of them, I can provide a little bit more depth. And so in the first instance, credential phishing, as I mentioned earlier, would be when a person would receive an email claiming to be, you know, security department or, uh, you know, some highly important thing that they have to do. And when the person clicks the link, they are then sent to a web page, which looks like the legitimate Office 365 login page, as an example. And when they enter their credentials, the source code of that web page has a form, and the form has instructions. And those instructions are when someone clicks submit, collect the information in the username and password, and send it to what we call a drop account, right? It's like an email address that collects the information submitted on that page. Now, we know this because through our investigations, we analyze, you know, I think we're on about tens or if not hundreds of thousands of URLs every day to determine if they're efficient or not. And so we have seen how the information submitted to an email and from that email, what they do in some instances in credential phishing is that they know that some people like researchers will submit dummy information. So what they do is they do a, a check, right? They take the credentials and try to impersonate someone send connecting to the account using some corner, uh, they call it an SMTP checker. It's a, SMTP is a protocol for sending email. And so when they check the credential and it works, they know it's valid. If it's not valid, they get rid of it. And then once it's a valid, we have seen like literally in minutes, it can lead to what we call BEC. And I will lead to that in a minute. So that's credential phishing, essentially. But boldly, the three different areas we've seen these credentials being used, we see them being sold in the dark web for very little, because then other people can use it to send spam, for example, or unsolicited commercial emails. They could use it to look at the person's account and steal confidential information or business email compromise. So that's how credentials are used typically. We then move to BEC and CEO fraud. There, it's uh, I think most of the time, 
Some people like to use BEC to include phishing, but it's really a different type of activity. And the reason they use business email and compromise is that this activity is targeting companies. And the reason is it's another way of stealing money from the bank, right, so to speak. And what I mean by that is that they've realized, the criminals have realized that companies have processes in place, right? So for example, I want to buy, I want to pay for a service where it goes to procurement and then goes to accounts payable and they make a, a payment. Well, understanding this kind of almost a supply chain, right? The criminals have realized that if they can monitor for wire transfers or transactions, they can like take over that conversation and redirect the payment to a different account. And this is how it could work based on what we've seen. So as I mentioned, you have credential, they then have access to your account. When they have access to your account, in most cases, we see two things happening. One, they add a forward enroll. So they add an inbox forward, forward enroll, which says, if you receive an email and in the subject or the body, you see accounts payable, invoice, USD, EUR, so different keywords which are related to a transaction, forward it to this email account. In other cases, what they do is they say forward it to an RSS folder. So a folder in your account. And so then they will access your account and that specific folder to get the email messages, which is, makes it harder to identify who they are, right? Because if they have an email or well, someone accesses that email. So once they add a forwarding rule and messages are sent and they find an email about the payment due, what they do is they look at who are the parties and depending on who, who is the person receiving the money, they'll get rid of them on the chain and create a homoglyph domain name. A homoglyph is like the Egyptian times, right? Something that is made to look like. It impersonates another domain name. For example, an I becomes a one, right? Or an O for Oscar becomes a zero. So it's a slight change. And what they do then is that they, have, they use the same name as the person who they've removed, and they continue the conversation. And at some point, they say, hey, my account has changed. I did a PDF. This is our new bank account. Well, because the people on the chain have been part of the chain, they think it's legitimate. And so they make changes to the payee, to the instructions, and then the money is moved to a different account. It's just terrible when you see how much money has been lost. And if you read all the reports, you know, it's in the billions of dollars that have been lost this way. And that's why BEC has become very, very important to tackle as a type of crime. Now, the third category, we said also combination. And the reason is that in BEC, the second category, there are cases where it's almost like a stakeout, right? They see a company because they go to a website, like a, the city has to make public all the RFPs, you know, orders that they have to do because they have to be public. So they see who may be bidding for a contract and then they'll impersonate that person and try and get access to the payments for that government contract, as an example. So that doesn't use credential phishing, right? It's They're just looking for public information in order to understand what relationships are and to take over a transaction. Fascinating stuff, you know, it's, it's almost a, could make a movie out of how these people operate. And is BEC the sort of end goal for the fishers? So, for example, is fishing in the consumer space, the, the harvesting of, of credentials, then being used to launch and mount uh, BEC attacks in order to actually make some money? So I think there is a way we can distinguish between consumer and 
enterprise fishing. So the difference between sort of a, a spray concept, which is for consumers just trying get as many as accounts compared to the enterprise, the business email compromise where it's more targeted. And the difference is that when you create a new Hotmail or Outlook or Gmail account, the systems know it's new, right? When I say it's new, is that if you were to send me an email from Outlook.com, right, I would know it was created yesterday. But if it started to send emails to like, a lot of 200 people is highly suspect. But if you were able to get a person who's had the account, like let's say for 10 years, right? Well, maybe that's not an anomaly because the person has lots of friends. They have lots of contacts, right? They, it looks like a real person. And so it's more likely to go under the radar when it comes to detection. And those could be some of the benefits of using compromised consumer email accounts. Just one example. There are many others. On the enterprise side, what we've seen, for example, in some of the attacks is that the people who are being targeted, typically within a category, right? We see a lot of executives, for example, in the C-suite that have been targeted. We see a lot of people in the accounts department, which have been targeted. We see directors being targeted because these are people who can authorize payments. They're not looking to send uh, an email to a person who cannot help them, unless maybe it's an executive assistant who then can give them access to the inbox of the C-suite. Now, in my presentation, I've spoken at times of dark web, and I think I'll just like put a, a sentence behind that. You know, dark web is a word that is uh, used often, but in this context, I'm just speaking about places where people sell, conduct activities associated with the criminal activity. The web is divided into four categories from my lens. One is the surface web, which is indexed like through search engines. The second is called the deep web. Those are websites that are either password protected, like an online forum where you have to register an account before you get in, or a dynamically created website. So for example, a new site where the content changes on a regular basis. So that's a deep web. It's not indexed. It's one of the biggest parts. Then the dark web is really tall, right? That's where you need a specialized search engine. You have to use go to dot onion websites and that's a different category dark web then you have the vetted web the vetted web are websites where in order for you to get access you need to be vouched which means that another criminal has to say you're a bad guy and or girl and so then you will be able to access it and it's a way for them to try and trust each other but in my it's context the, it's the twitter blue tick of, uh, <laughs> of the bad guys Yes, they're trying, they're trying, they're trying. Uh, but we're in all of them, so, you know, for, for what that matters. One other section of the Microsoft Digital Defense Report that you had covered was the section on COVID-19-themed phishing lures. So can you talk a little bit about how these techniques for phishing and business email compromise were leveraged during the time of the pandemic and are continuing to be leveraged? So one of the... Uh, one of the patterns or trends we've noticed is that often the criminals change their attack mechanisms or the way they send messages based on lures which are relevant to a, a group of people in a specific time. As an example, we saw the same with, you see it with uh, elections or sport games or something to do with a celebrity. In this case, with COVID-19 at the beginning of the year, we started to see a change and it came from a specific and, and came in, different people were doing it, but we saw it more naturally with one group. 
where we were tracking them from mid-December on the activities they were conducting, fishing activities they were conducting. They were using, for example, financial statements or they were using bonuses or different lures about finance. And then all of a sudden they changed and they started to use COVID-19 bonus as a lure where they were saying, hey, click this link to find out about your COVID-19 bonus. And so when people clicked the link, they were sent to an Office 365 login page and they submitted their credentials. A lot of people submitted their credentials from the logs we've analyzed because they believed that it was something that was relevant for them at that time. And that was part of the lure. And after a few months, they changed. We were able to technically counter what they were doing and they moved to a different method of attack. But it's just using, using the times. We just recently saw it with the elections, for example, the same thing, the US elections. And we saw that there were some groups who had modified how they presented the email to people in order to encourage them to click the link and lead them to efficient pay. So the COVID-19 lures are something that we've noticed. It's part of a broader theme related to uh, societal events, which a criminal is trying to take advantage of to increase the possibility of people clicking a link, right? It has to be believable and there has to be a sense of urgency. Do you ever think we'll preempt the societal moments? So if there's some big moment happening, we can assume that uh, cybercrime would uh, leverage that societal moment as a lure, and so we could plan ahead. One thing which would be difficult is, as a company, we have a wide array of customers, and we want all our customers to show up the way they want to show up, you know, without having to try and be someone else and not authentic. And with that in mind, it really, and even a step further, these people Right? They work for different organizations, and in different organizations, they have different cultures. They have different ways of working. If you look at, for example, a manufacturing company where maybe IT may not be at the forefront, well, the way they interact with IT will be very different to if you went to a, a startup, a tech startup, where that's what they do most of the time, not manufacturing. Right? And so when we have such a wide array of customers. And we've got governments, right? We've got governments from different countries. Some like each other, some don't. We have banks. We've got, we have different types of customers. And Microsoft all of a sudden becomes the protector, right? Because criminals are targeting banks, but they are our customers. So they rely on our security as well. So when we go back and speak about lures and things, these are things that we have to, as cybercrime enforcers, we have to understand it happens. And so as we build technical measures, we have to implement technical measures that are uh, adjustable and can, can change based on patterns it's observing. So I think the way to attack it is always to have this kind of um, different measures that are working together and leverage artificial intelligence and machine learning models in order to help us distinguish between different types of criminal activity and protect our customers if that makes sense. And what is our guidance to customers on what they can be doing to help prevent against these attacks? One is always to have good policies in place within the company, right? So that all employees are aware about how to make sure the device is up to date. Don't pick up a USB on the street and put it in, you know, uh, make sure internally there are policies on backups. Make sure you've got an online and an offline backup, right? So you have to have the, policies in place that help protect the organization. The second part 
is to work hand in hand with their technology providers, right? So for example, if you work with Office 365, see, make sure that we have something called a secure store, a secure score. That secure store is based on experience. We can say, hey, maybe if you, to have a better score, put MFA, multi-factor authentication. Some of your users allow forwarding, block it. Ask them, make sure it's admin can only authorize forwarding, right? Or off 2.0, make sure that it, consent has to be from the admin. So there's a secure store that can help them really implement, you know, a much more secure environment, which will be frictionless. Number three is to have regular tests within your organization so that, I mean, that could be part of the policy, but typically it's not always, where you have phishing simulations, which are taking place, right? So that you can start to ed- keep the education at the forefront because we're all very busy and sometimes we forget. And I think four is that we have to work, you have to look always to use technology to advance the way you work forward. And what I mean by that is that companies need to think about the digitization of their work processes. And what I mean is, uh, I mean, this may be a little bit off, but investigating some ransomware cases, for example, recently, we saw that part of the problem is that some customers have old infrastructure on-prem, for example. And so that is what is being attacked. And once they get into that, then they can pivot and move laterally elsewhere into the organization. So I think digital transformation is by looking at your processes overall and saying, are there ways we can modernize in a way that creates a better security landscape? Well, thank you for your time today. Again, we were, we were talking about the Microsoft Digital Defense Report, which is available to download for free. We'll put the link in the show notes. Peter Anaman or Pierre Anaman, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Be safe. And now let's meet an expert from the Microsoft security team to learn more about the diverse backgrounds and experiences of the humans creating AI and tech at Microsoft. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Security Unlocked. Today, we are joined by Scott Christensen, who is a senior security program manager at Microsoft, as well as a professor at Bellevue University. Thank you for joining us, Scott. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So so let's kick it off by just giving a little bit more context behind those two roles. Can you tell us what your day and, and night look like as a program manager and professor? What do you do? What does your team look like? What do you teach? Yeah, absolutely. So let's start with Microsoft. That's the thing that takes the majority of my time. So I work in our customer security and trust group. And specifically within that, our security engineering group within Customer Security Trust. And then more specifically, I work in our data analytics and insights team. And our group as a whole, our security engineering team is responsible for ensuring the company meets the software development lifecycle, operational security assurance policies and requirements that we have for any shipping software that we have to ensure and what we're shipping out meets our own internal um, security standards and our internal security rigor, which then is tied to plenty of different external security compliance objectives and things like that. So that's kind of a mouthful, but we help ensure the company's delivering secure code. It's kind of the nutshell, or as we like to say, we're kind of the security conscious for the company. We have security teams throughout the products and then throughout the organization. And where the conscience that comes through and says, is everybody doing everything they can be doing? And are there areas where we could be doing better? And, you know, how can we help in that space? And so 
what we started doing is we started pulling in all the bugs across the company. So we've got like 700 different Azure DevOps repositories where engineers are storing work items and working with, and they generate roughly about probably 50 to 60,000 new work items every single month. And so we suck in all that data to one gigantic data warehouse, and we perform kind of analytics on that. That's really branched out to kind of work streams that I very specifically work on. One, I've spoken a little bit externally about this. So there's a blog up on the Microsoft blog site. I spoke at an RSA this past year, and it's kind of their machine learning work that we've done with security bug classification. So we pulled in all of the security bugs to this one spot. We said some of them are labeled as security, some of them aren't. We took a look at that and we said, well, are there any that aren't labeled as security that should be labeled as security? So about Four years ago, probably, we started a little hackathon project trying to answer that question. And it's been a small project kind of throughout time with that, but ultimately it turned into a product that we've put together where we built a machine learning system that accurately classifies these bugs and says, hey, this pool of bugs is security and this pool of bugs is non-security. And then for the the pool of bugs that it says it is security, it will... um, say, hey, yeah, these particular subset of those bugs are critical security bugs. These are important security bugs, or these are some other particular severity with that. And we've had just unbelievable accuracy with that. So that's one of the things that I work on is we've got that model built and we're in the process of really, uh, we've got it built, we've classified all this data that we have within the company. And now we're in the process of making that more operational so the engineering teams can take advantage of it. And then in turn, finding a way to take that and spin it externally, probably through GitHub. That's kind of the target that we're looking at. But so external customers and just the security industry as a whole can kind of take advantage of this auto classification piece. I spend a portion of my day doing that. The other portion of my day is kind of around this this compliance reporting GitHub bot, a really incredible code analysis tool. Used to be called Semmel, it's now called CodeQL. And it does just a phenomenal job at finding software vulnerabilities. And it's our team's job to kind of get that deployed within the company. And right now, getting the static analysis stuff rolled out is is the biggest priority. So that's pretty much what I spend my day on. In the evenings, like I mentioned, a master's level cybersecurity professor at Bellevue University, specifically in their online cybersecurity program. And there I teach a few different classes, but most specifically, I teach their master's in um, architecture and design. Thanks for that intro, Scott. I've, oh gosh, I've written down like four questions. Coming back to, I think one of the first things you just talked about in your day job, if we can call it that, your Microsoft role. How do you use machine learning to classify whether a bug is security related or not? It started as this as this summer hackathon project, and it was just a few of us, myself, uh, one of my colleagues, Alok Kumar, and one of our other colleagues, Naveen Narendra, sat down and said, "Hey, are we missing anything in this space?" and None of the three of us were were data scientists by any means. Alok had a little bit more understanding experience with some of the machine learning work. And so we sat down and, you know, one of the big hot tents in July and started chewing through this problem. And I was an expert in the security space. And so I said, well, well, those guys were going through and they were looking to see if they could find a machine learning model that might kind of work to help us solve this problem. I went through and I did manual sampling of the bugs to determine if there was actually an issue there or not. So we went through and took a couple thousand bugs that were tagged as security and looked to see if we had any misclassified or misidentified bugs there. And then we took a bucket of the bugs that were not classified as security, like another 2,000, 3,000 random sampling of bugs and said, 
are there any security bugs in that space that we're missing? And so we found discrepancies in, in both spaces. And so clearly the things that aren't showing up on the security radar are potentially a problem. The good thing is there's a good side to this whole story is that engineers fix bugs regardless if they're security bugs or not. So the stuff that we found that didn't necessarily show up as a security bug was still getting fixed and it was getting fixed within a a good SLA. So that was good. The right thing was happening, but it wasn't necessarily maybe showing up on everybody's radar. And more importantly, it wasn't necessarily showing up on a radar where a security assurance person could come say, hey, I see you're doing some security work over here. Maybe I can give you a hand and I can help you out with that. And the, the same was true for the space where we saw all of these security bugs or things that were tagged as security bugs, but they weren't necessarily security related. You know, engineers are wasting kind of these trimmed down SLA fix times for these, you know, supposed security bugs that aren't there. And so we're spinning up all this excitement around, hey, oh, here's these security bugs that come in. You have to fix these things, but they're not actual security bugs. And so you're just kind of spinning your wheels on that and wasting a valuable engineering effort. So we started building our own machine learning algorithm kind of around this. And we started kind of doing this manual assessment. We said, okay, out of these bugs that are security, can we find clusters of bugs that are misclassified? And so eventually we did that. And it took us a while. It took us a good probably year and a half to come up with what we'd say was a really kind of gold standard training data set. We had this big block of bugs, roughly about 300,000 bugs that were classified as security and had the right security severity. And we were confident in those classification numbers. And so that's what we used to then train the model. So as we were going through this, we got about to that point, we said, we really need data science expertise. We hired uh, Mayana Pereira, and she's now our data scientist for the project. And she is absolutely fantastic. She found error rates associated with the data and how flexible we could be as error information potentially got introduced to our training data set. She's shifted the algorithms that we've used a couple of different times. And we are light years beyond where we were, thanks to kind of her joining the team and joining the project. And so, yeah, it's been about a four-year journey, probably. So just to clarify there, so the machine learning model is simply looking at the title of the bug. It's not looking at like repro steps or any other data. It's just what is the title of the bug? Yep, yep, that's correct. So the courses that you're teaching are around infrastructure and the work that you do in Microsoft is around software development. So how did you get into security? What have you done within the security space? What brought you to these particular domains within security? So I used to actually live in Omaha. I'm not from there. I'm originally from North Dakota, part of the small cluster of people that, that in this world that are from North Dakota. But I met my wife up there. We moved down to Omaha. I restarted kind of, kind of my education once I went to Omaha into computer science. I went to school there. I got a job and eventually I started working at an architecture engineering company. I say it's a small company. It was a 1,200 person company, but it was at the time, it was the fourth largest architecture engineering company in the, in the U.S. So it was decent sized. Being a small company, you get hands-on with a lot of different things. And so I'm going to school. I'm working, I'm starting to run all the infrastructure components that, that we have within the company. And we've got like 13 different offices in the US. We started to expand internationally. So I got a lot of exposure in that space. As I'm going to school, I'm trying to figure out exactly what kind of discipline of IT I want to do. At that time, it wasn't necessarily development. I liked the Microsoft products. I like server products. I like Linux products. It was really the, the infrastructure stuff. And so I started getting into networking and then I kind of got bored with that. And so then I kind of went to systems administration of Windows stuff. You know, that was where I was thinking my focus was going to go. And then I kind of got bored of that. One of the unique things about Omaha is it has a 
really large uh, Department of Defense presence down in Bellevue, Nebraska. They've got an Air Force base and they have strategic command that's down there too. And one of my professors happened to be a security person that worked at STRATCOM down at the base. And he was really into security and he kind of taught us some security stuff. And I was like, oh, this is kind of like the Jedi Sith type of cool, you know, dark hacking. This is before like hacking was like super cool, like it, like it is now. It was just kind of this thing, but it's like, hey, you can get software to do things that the software developer didn't expect to do. I'm like, this is kind of interesting. It's got like the prankster type of thing, right? And you get this creative mind going, and it's like, hey, I want to do security. So I'm working at the architecture business. And I said, hey, I'd really like to shift my role into security. So I started doing some security stuff for them. But it's not really necessarily a high target type of business. And they said, hey, you know, if you're ever looking for something, we're looking for a lead in our incident response group. And so shortly thereafter, I moved over and I was the lead for the incident response team for a TD Ameritrade for a number of years. And TD Ameritrade absolutely has targets. They have not, a, not only normal criminal targets, they've got nation state attackers and anybody that's looking to try and steal money and hack into large financial enterprises. So that was a really exciting job. And we did a lot of really exciting, cool things there. And some neat stuff happened. And then one day I, I got a call from our, it was our VP of security engineering at the time. And he said, hey, you really need some help over in the software assurance space. And so I moved over onto that team and ramped up my dev and my code review chops and started doing kind of code review and code analysis. And specifically around that time, we were getting into the mobile app space. So that's where I really focused my effort was the kind of mobile applications, ensuring we had security coding practices with that, and then then eventually expanded kind of to, to the rest of the enterprise. So I was working at TD Ameritrade during the day, and then I was teaching at one location at night, and then teaching online in between that. And then I was running some of the local um, security groups too, like the OWASP Omaha I was a president of that for a little while. I was president of Nebraska InfraGuard for a little bit. So pretty active in there. And Microsoft reached out to, out to me and said, hey, look, we've got this opportunity and we'd like to talk to you about it. And it's Microsoft, right? So I'm not going to say no. It's like you know, some of the smartest people in the world working on these kind of world-changing problems. And I came out and I will say it took the third different position at Microsoft before I finally actually moved out to Redmond and started working for Microsoft full-time. I had two different opportunities that, that didn't work out. So anybody who's ever interested in working for Microsoft, don't give up. There's enough people here and enough opportunities. I'm sure the right opportunity exists out here for you. And, and clearly it was because this was eventually when I came out here to do this work, this was absolutely the right fit for my skill set for the company. And it was this kind of perfect blend. And I, I wouldn't think of anything different beyond that. I absolutely love what I do. And I'm now in a role where I have an opportunity to, you know, I'm not just securing an enterprise or securing a company. I'm part of really changing security around the world as a whole. So it's this really kind of wonderful opportunity and wonderful role that, that I get to do in these kind of global changing types of things that we, problem solving, I guess, that we get to work on within the company. I love the context and I can absolutely vouch for your statement about Microsoft. I came to Microsoft after the second role. And so going inside Microsoft or having the inside out perspective, I now understand the sheer size of Microsoft and the fact that you just keep trying. If the right fit is there, it'll happen. But you're Story seems to really have started with a professor who highlighted security as an opportunity. So is there any connection between that professor and your desire to go into teaching? How did the professorship start? 
Very good question. I was pretty active in the local Omaha security community with the different groups. And there was a guy named Ron Werner and Ron's a good friend of mine, still is a good friend of mine. And he was very active in the community as a whole. And around the time that Bellevue University was standing up their cybersecurity program, Ron was there and he called me up because he was standing up the program. He was the director of the program at the time. And he said, hey, look, we're standing this thing up. And I know you've had some experience teaching at ITT Tech. And I started teaching at ITT Tech because I graduated with my master's degree. I was still um, friends with some of the professors there. And they said, hey, you should come teach for us. And interestingly enough, I decided to teach for one very specific reason. I wasn't a very cohesive public speaker, and it was a skill set that I really wanted to grow and develop. And I thought, wow, A, there's no way for me to be a better public speaker than to go up day after day in front of a group of people and try and deliver a message. And I'm not just talking about something at that point in time. I'm teaching them something, so they have to come away with knowledge after that. So it was really like a self-growth thing in a space that I felt like I had some level of expertise. Over the course of time, I really started to develop kind of a rapport and almost a character, like you'd put a hat on and say, okay, this is this is my teaching hat. This is what I'm going to go do. And you deliver something that's interesting and engaging. And there was a personal growth component with that because I'm this old guy by this time. I'm married. I've got kids. I don't have a lot of extra curricular time on my hands, but I have all of these students. It was, it was a scattering of male and female students. So I could start to take new ideas and present them as seeds to the students. So they hey, I wonder if you did this or there's this interesting security tool. Do you think you could do this with it? And I could pique their interest and they go out and the next week they came back and they're like, hey, look at this thing that I did. And so then we all got to learn together with that. That was really, really personally rewarding to be able to do that, to help people learn, but also to see the feedback and me individually grow from the knowledge that they were presenting back to myself and back to the class too. So it was really incredible. And security is hard. It's not an easy discipline. It's not an easy space. It covers the gamut of everything. If you think about security kind of holistically, that you have all these engineers building all this technology to do one thing. Security is trying to understand what they did and figure out where they went wrong. So I don't have to get a lot of people excited about security anymore. They're already excited because they've started the program. There's definitely some level setting that you have to do and let them understand kind of what the space looks like versus what they think it's going to look like. Everybody thinks they're going to come in and they're going to be a pen tester and they're going to make millions of dollars and find all these vulnerabilities. And that might be the case for some people. I mean, there's definitely bug bounty programs out there where people are making significant amounts of money, but there's a bigger space than that. And that's a very specific subset of everything that you can do in security. There's a lot of opportunities for lots of other people to do lots of different things. So I like to help do that too. But more importantly, I like to help the students understand how to properly secure things. There's a lot of misinformation kind of in that space or people have misguided expectations on how to secure specific things. There's definitely a right way to to do things and a wrong way to do things. And so that's one of the things that I feel I probably contribute the most is saying, here's a right way to do this. But sometimes if you have some knowledge or, or you have that background already, the online experience can be very successful for you. Or if you're just really good at, you don't mind asking questions. I love that you said if you find yourself not succeeding in an in-person environment, go check out online and see if that's the right thing for you and and the inverse. That's fantastic advice. Well, Scott, is there anything you wanted to plug or uh, point people to before we let you go? Any sort of resources, blogs, communities you like? Besides assessing that 
the machine learning model is the right tool. The machine learning model that we built right now is the right tool for external customers. We're doing a lot of our own individual assessment. You know, Microsoft has gone down this awesome path of responsible AI and ethical AI. So we're no different to that process. In addition to seeing how well the model does with data that's outside Microsoft, we're also running it through the gamut. So we've taken it through um, our legal resources to say, here's our model. You know, if we were to release this thing tomorrow externally, would you be okay with it? Here's the data that we use. Here's the data owners that own the data that we're using. Do you think it's okay with them that we've built this model and it does these things? We've got security teams now within the company that do... um, this responsible AI and security AI work. And we've talked to them through the risks associated potentially with our model and and what the model could do. That whole security AI space is really new. So it's interesting for a security team to come out with this security classification model and then kind of go through those reviews. We're in the process of starting to work with some security AI pen testers now within the company. So people that their specific skill set is attacking these AI and ML models and finding vulnerabilities and flaws kind of associated with that. So we're engaging with them to do that. So we're doing a lot of different work kind of with that. And again, that's all because we've trained this model on a non-public data set. So if we expose the model externally, we want to make sure that it's not going to expose any of this non-public information to the rest of the world. If all this turns out and it fails, so far it looks like it's not, but if it does, then, you know, being a responsible engineer in this space, we have to go get public data to do this. You know, if we trained it with public data, that would be fine, but it's taken us three years to kind of get to this particular point to build up this kind of reference data set. It's going to take that long externally. And so what we want to do is try and see if what we have is is good enough to put out there, but do it in absolutely the most responsible way for Microsoft and our engineers and our customers that we possibly can. So if there's any plug, it it is that plug. And that responsible AI is super, super important. And we're doing our best to kind of adhere to those goals. Well, Scott Christensen, thank you so much for being on Security Unlocked. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It was really rewarding and I really appreciate it. Well, we had a great time unlocking insights into security from research to artificial intelligence. Keep an eye out for our next episode. And don't forget to tweet us at MSFT Security or email us at securityunlocked at microsoft.com with topics you'd like to hear on a future episode. Until then, stay safe. Stay secure. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.